Well, good morning, Bethel. As we come to God's word, let us pray and prepare our hearts. God, we thank you for this time that we've had already to get to sing praise to you, to worship you, to adore you. You are worthy of all worship and of our very lives. And as we now come to your word, we come with eager hearts. We want to meet with you. We want to hear from you. Lead us and guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One early morning in February of 1737, a young man, he was about 22 years old, named George Whitfield, stood up on a hillside to preach his first outdoor sermon. It was probably around maybe 5 a.m., and he was preaching to a group of coal miners walking on their way to work in Bristol, England. And that moment was a history-making moment. It was significant for a couple of reasons. First of all, I don't know if you recognize the name George Whitfield. If you don't know that name, you, you should. He was for sure one of the most influential preachers in his century. An argument could be made that he was one of the most influential preachers and evangelists between the Apostle Paul and Billy Graham in that whole window of time in the church. God used Whitfield to bring about incredible revivals as he preached in England and Wales and Scotland and across into the colonies that would become the United States in the 1700s. But the other thing that is significant about that very first outdoor sermon that Whitfield preached was his audience. It was a group of coal miners. See, Whitfield... He was an educated man, educated at Oxford, the, the university of his day. He was from a middle-class, decent-to-do background and family. And coal miners in Whitfield's day were the scum of society. I mean, they were literally filthy. They, their, their skin was constantly caked black. Not, not from the pigment of their skin, but from the soot of the coal. They, they never washed, so they, they were filthy caked on with soot. They smelled horribly, and, and they were renowned for not just the, vile, the, the filth there, but their vile lives. Recounting in the 1700s of coal miners in England, they were known for bestiality, they were known for drunkenness. They were untrustworthy individuals. They were all around just wicked people. And at this point, it was just a couple decades removed from the, the most recent wave of the bubonic plague going through England. And so very much in the minds of people was still the, the danger of that. And, and what you need to understand is that the rich, the way they avoided the plague was they fled to be able to social distance. We know about that now, right? They social distance by going out into their, their estates out in the countryside. But when the, the plague was sweeping through, it particularly decimated these poor communities where people lived in such close proximity and they had nowhere to go, like Bristol at this point. And so these were, without any hyperbole, the last people in the world and the last place in the world that you would ever think to go 
if you were trying to start a world-changing ministry. But this was where Whitfield began to preach. This morning, we're going to finish off our second major section in our study of the letter to the Romans in the New Testament. Starting next Sunday, we're going to be beginning into an Easter series and spend a few weeks preparing our hearts and then celebrating the death and resurrection of Christ. And if the Lord would allow, after we're finished that, from April through to June, we're going to finish off this amazing letter of Romans in chapters 12 to 16. And what you know and what you'll find out in the coming weeks here is that chapter 12 has a huge pivot in it. Chapter 11 is the the finishing, the the bow wrapping up, the end of this, this whole unpacking of the good news gospel message that Paul is proclaiming. And then chapter 12 takes a significant turn in where it goes and then says, as we'll see, It says, okay, now that you understand all this amazing gospel of what Jesus has done for you, how then do we live together? And the final five chapters are all about practical, real-world application between you and I. How do we live in view of the gospel? Chapter 11 today, which is where we are, grab your Bible out, turn to Romans chapter 11, is all about finishing off, putting the cherry on top of the cheesecake, wrapping the bow around the end of these 11 chapters unpacking this glorious good news of the gospel. And chapter 11 is speaking to, confronting a final problem we need to all be aware of. A problem that that comes up as we hear and see and become aware of and even trust in the gospel. A dangerous problem that was true for the people then in ancient Rome almost 2,000 years ago and is just as true for you and I here today. Do you know what? That problem is that chapter 11 is going to confront and address and speak to? It's arrogance. Arrogance. This final chapter of this first section of Romans is all about confronting these tentacles of arrogance that seep so far deep down into our hearts and souls. And to be even more specific, It's going to show us that we are prone to arrogantly think that God only works in a certain kind of people, a certain group, a certain type of person. God's grace is only poured out in people that are like, you can fill in the blank for you, but we all have this tendency to arrogantly think that way. For the first recipients of this letter, the the dividing line was Jew and Gentile. The Jews thought, oh, the Gentiles, God's not going to work amongst them. We are the chosen people. The Gentiles thought, oh, God's not working amongst the Jews. Look at how much they're stuck in their archaic, old, ancient ways, and they haven't realized the freedom that's in Christ. For us, that's probably not the line, Jew-Gentile, that we see this upon. But oh, so easily we do the same thing today. We get these lines in our heads, these groups that we put people into, and we look at that person and think, oh yeah, 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 that's a, that's a great kind of person that I could totally see myself connecting with. I could totally lean in and be alongside, and I could totally see them coming and becoming part of our church. Or we look at that person over there and we think the way they act the way they speak, the way they look, the way they 
carry themselves? Do you know where they're from? Do you know what's going on in their backstory? Do you know who their parents are? Do you see the color of their skin? Do you hear the accent of their voice? There's no way God's going to work in someone like that. We look at a group of filthy, stinky, vile, dangerous coal miners and think they are the last place in the world and the last people in the world that God would possibly work in. We are prone to arrogantly think God only works in a certain kind of people. But God is at work in ways you would never expect. Here's the glorious truth of Romans chapter 11. God is pouring out His grace in ways and on people that you'd never expect. That's the message that we're going to see today, friends. So, let's begin in verse 1. I ask then, did God reject His people? I mean, since we saw last week, and if you missed the message, you can pop online and go check it out, but we saw last week at the tail end of chapter 10, That the Israelites have been this disobedient and obstinate people. That's what it says in verses 18 to 21, right? Of chapter 10. They, They, God has extended rescue offer after rescue offer after rescue offer. And they've just kept saying, no, I'm good. And it would be easy in view of that happening and understanding that reality as a Gentile to then begin looking down your nose at the Jews. Right? Because you're like, ha, what's wrong with you? How could you miss so many offers from the God of the universe to rescue you? How could you be so foolish and blind and stubborn? Here's the first point that comes out of our text, though. God is pouring out grace in ways that you may not see. Paul says, no, 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 God has not rejected the Israelites. Verse 1, I ask then to God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. It is true that a lot of the Jews at this particular moment in time have turned their backs and do not recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, but not all of them. Paul's like, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew and I've come to love Jesus. And do you remember Paul's story? Do you remember how his story began? As the guy named Saul, and you you go to Acts chapter 7 and 8, and you see that, that Saul was this leader of a gigantic mob bent on blood and the destruction of the church. Saul was the one who helped oversee the very first execution, killing of a martyr. His name was Stephen just because he was a follower of Jesus. Saul was vicious and adamant about traveling all over the land, trying to find anybody who was believing in Jesus to arrest them and even kill them. Listen to how he actually describes his own journey in his letter to the church in the city of Galatia. You've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. 
You've heard how I intensely persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He goes on there in the next few verses and say, it changed everything. And then he picks up in verse 22. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. Paul, as Saul, was the ultimate opposition He was vehemently against the people of God. Then on a a road to Damascus where Jesus showed up, everything changed, and he became the one who was preaching the good news of the gospel. And do you see the language of the book of Romans coming out even in this way? Paul describes his own story. He was a vile sinner persecuting the church. He was zealous for religion, but he was missing the point until God called him by his grace and revealed his son to him. And Paul went on to be the one in whom the people of God had awe and worship and wonder because they said, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Who would ever think that the leader of the mob that sets out to kill Christians would become the leading evangelist for the name of Jesus. How easily it could have been for those first Christians to have embraced this sense of arrogant discouragement with all the persecution they were facing This self-absorbed fear to think, where is God in this? This is so bad and so dangerous for us. Our friends are dying. How could God let this happen? And Paul's like, but our God, you need to know this, is pouring out grace in ways that you may not see. He continues, verse 2, do you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? Remember the story about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? And he said, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. The Old Testament prophet Elijah comes on the radar for Paul here now. He talks about this time when there was this huge persecution going on and and this wicked, vile queen came and tried to kill everybody and then was on the hunt to kill Elijah and he had to run away and he thought everyone else had abandoned God and he was the only one who was left. He was the only one who was truly following after God. Everyone else had turned their backs on God. It was just him left. In other words, this sense of an arrogance was starting to permeate his heart, grow within him. How, God, could you let this happen? I'm the only one who's still faithful to you. I'm the only good one left. And verse 4 says, what was God's answer to him? Well, God said to Elijah, Paul points it out here, remember, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 
So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. I know it might look like the gospel has gone out and you're the only one. And how easily when you receive that good news, it can actually start to turn into this bitterness and arrogance because you look around and say, why am I the only one and how come God you're not working in other ways? Why are you letting the world to go to such hell in a handbasket, God? What is the problem? And verse 7 to 10 basically says, well, some hearts God is hardening and doing a work that you may not understand. Some hearts God is softening and lavishing grace in ways that you may not understand. And here's the bottom line. In all of this, Paul's story, Elijah's story, as you look around at the hard and the softening, God is pouring out grace in all kinds of ways. You may not see it, though. You may not see how God is working. But you know God is still doing this, right? Like, this wasn't just true for just Elijah way, way back. This wasn't just true in Paul's life. And this wasn't just true in the early church here amongst the Jews and the Gentiles. But this is true today that God is still working in amazing ways. There may be people that you think, man, there's no way God could do something there. But you know what? can't tell you how many times I've heard story of story. I never thought that person would ever be here in church. Wow, look at what God did. I never thought that person, I never thought this heart could change. I thought they were too far gone. I never would have imagined. Oh, friends, God, take heart, is pouring on his grace in all kinds of ways right now that you cannot see and I cannot see, but he is alive and at work in our world. We are prone to arrogantly think God only works in these certain boxes, these certain people, these certain ways, but God is pouring out his grace in all kinds of ways that we don't see. Here's the second point. As we face this arrogance that has its tentacles so down deep in our souls, never forget the grace God has poured out on you. Today, friends, from your home, can I urge you? Can I encourage you? This is so important for all of us to hear, for me, for you, for all of us. Never forget the grace that God has poured out on you if you're a follower of Jesus. Arrogant builds up. And we forget so easily that we are only where we are because of the grace of Jesus. Verse 11, read with me. Again, I ask, did they stumble, the Israelites stumble, so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgressions, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? See, God has a plan going on here, right? We've seen that repeatedly throughout this book. And it involves both the Israelites and the non-Israelites, the Gentiles. God's plan of salvation is for every nation, people, tribe, and tongue. He's working And Paul says, I am talking to you Gentiles. 
Let me take a moment, focus on you Gentiles, Paul says. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my people to envy and save some of them. Do you see what he's saying there? You ever heard the saying, you remember hearing the saying, you don't know what you've got till it's gone, Right? You find yourself in a relationship and you start to take it for granted and you don't know how, how precious that relationship is until the person is gone. You find yourself in a job and you think the grass is greener on the other side so you go chasing another career, another job, another position and you don't realize how good you had it until it's gone. We can all get complacent and start to take for granted these amazing things that are right in front of us and that's what Israel did. That's what he's saying. Israel had right in front of them the amazing, overflowing grace of God pointing ahead to Jesus, and they took it for granted. They missed the point. And so God is now working out this plan by hardening Israel so that the Gentiles might come in to help shake the Israelites out of their stupor so that they might see how good they really had it and run back to Jesus. That's why all of this is going down the way it's going down. That's the plan that God is working out here in all of human history that's going to lead to him drawing men and women from both Israel and from all of the nations. The Gentiles are getting saved. The Israelites are being pointed back to Jesus. That's the whole plan of God. And here's the danger for the Gentiles. Here's the danger for, for us. We can start very quickly getting hard hearts and big heads and thinking, oh, look at us. Start looking down on others, looking, looking down on those who we perceive have hard hearts. So quickly, we can start thinking, oh, look at me, how much better I am. And what is wrong with you? Why do you not see God? How can you not see the truth of God's word? How can you not see what God is doing in this situation? What is wrong with you? And he's going to use this metaphor to be like, guard your heart. Don't let arrogance seep in. Be careful, friends. He's going to use this metaphor, this illustration of an olive tree. He says, picture two olive trees. One is a wild olive tree just growing out in the wild, and another is a cultivated olive tree growing in, a, a, in an orchard being carefully manicured by a gar gardener. Okay? The two olive trees represent two groups of people. The wild olive tree, the Gentiles, the cultivated olive tree in the orchard is the Israelites. Let's look at this. If some of the branches have broken off, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in amongst the others, and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, don't boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will then say, well, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, yeah, that's true. But they were broken off because of their unbelief. And you stand by faith. 
Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. See, the the metaphor he wants to use here at this moment is there's these two trees. There's the wild olive tree out in the wilderness. There's the manicured olive tree in the orchard. The manicured olive tree is the, the Israelites, the people of God. And if some branches on the manicured tree have been broken off so that some of these wild branches from a wild olive tree can be grafted into the tree and now live and be attached to the the root of this strong, stable, cultivated, carefully nourished and fertilized olive tree, and they can grow strong and mighty, how easy it would be for those branches to look down on the broken branches on the ground and say, ha, look at you, (laughs) look at me. You're broken lying on the ground, and I am here attached to the real olive tree. What's wrong with you? How could you miss this? How could you mess this up so much? Why could you be so foolish? And he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You need to remember that you're only here because you are a recipient of the grace of God. Gentiles, this is what has happened to you. You have been grafted in. You have received what was not yours to deserve. You have received what was not yours that you earned. You have been recipients of the grace of God. You stand on the shoulders of these past promises of God. Don't get all arrogant and full of yourself. Remember the grace that you have received because at one point you were a wild olive tree way out hopeless and helpless in the wilderness. And it's only the grace of God that's allowed you to be here. It is so easy for this arrogance to start to come in. It happens so quickly. Our arrogant hearts can move so quickly from humility to entitlement, from being grateful to being demanding, from being thankful to being bitter, from being compassionate and filled with compassion to condemnation. We forget so quickly that we are recipients of the grace of God. We forget that we don't deserve any of this. We so quickly start thinking, oh yeah, we're here because look at what I've done. Look at what I've done. Look at where I am. What's wrong with you? How could you be so blind? So, for example, in our context, we look around at the world out there and we see this, this broken, messed up world. Where, where it is, it is the, the governmental policies are doing all kinds of weird and wacky and messed up decisions. And the, the teaching going on in our schools is just filled with so much misunderstanding. And the laws of our land are opening the doors for all kinds of horrible atrocities and heart-wrenching injustices. And the advertisements and the TV shows that are there are just so laced with this sin. And it's so easy to see this clear fruit of a broken world and have our hearts start to get bitter. Our heads start to get bloated. Our hands start to clench and to look down our noses at all of them out there and say, what's wrong with them? Become filled with bitterness and jadedness and entitlement and condemnation. 
rather than allowing the gospel to allow us to see the brokenness of our world, to see the brokenness within the lives of people in our world, and cause us to weep, and cause us to pray, and cause us to stand up against injustice with love and kindness and care and to display the fruit of the Spirit because they need Jesus just as much as I needed Jesus. And if it weren't for the grace of God, I would be right there with them as hopeless and helpless and lost and misguided as they are. But then, you know what, friends? This arrogance and the tentacles of sin that goes down so deep, it's not just about out there and dealing with the world out there and the people out there in our world. Sadly, this happens far too often in here. Even in the circles of the supposed people of God and the church of Jesus Christ, these attitudes of arrogance seep in because sin is deep. See, we look down on that person sitting over there because of the struggle that we heard they're going through. And we think, can't believe you're struggling with that. We look down on that, that guy over there because we think, what? Who could ever work? How could God ever help a person who's, who's been there, who's done that, who looks like that, who sounds like that, who acts that way, who's from that place and that family, we hesitate and we hold back from going over and introducing ourselves to somebody else because they, they look different, they look strange, they look and they make us feel uncomfortable inside because of how they dress or how they look or how they sound. And this arrogant sin comes in all because we've forgotten that we are recipients of the grace of God too. But when the gospel permeates our heart and we remember, I'm only here because of the grace of God. The only reason I've been welcomed in is because Jesus died for me, not when I was polished and had it all together and am a perfect model of whatever, but because he died for me while I was still a sinner it leads us to embrace the truth of Romans 15, verse 7, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. See, the gospel breaks down this arrogance and reminds us we are recipients of the grace of God. How has Jesus accepted you? That's how you go accept others. How has Jesus welcomed you? How has Jesus loved you? How has Jesus responded to you? That is how you go and love others inside the church and outside the church. We are prone arrogantly to think God works only in certain kinds of people, but we're seeing that God is pouring out his grace in ways we may have never been aware of or seen. We're seeing that God calls us to never forget we are recipients of his grace. He's poured out his grace upon you. And then lastly, remember that God's grace is greater and goes farther than you would ever expect. God's grace is so much bigger, so much better, so much sweeter, so much deeper, so much vaster than you would ever imagine, friends. 
Verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mercy, mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. See, God has this plan. He has this plan that he is at work. And this chapter is the bow that ties the end of this plan on top of the present. This chapter here, chapter 11, and the tail end of it is showing us, here's the cherry on top of the Sunday of God's plan. For a period of time, ethnic Israel has had a hard heart. They have experienced a hardening, it says there. For a period of time, most, not all, because remember, we saw that there are a remnant, just like Paul who have come to know Jesus. But broadly speaking, at this point, until the fullness of Gentiles come in, the Israelites have a hard heart and were rejecting Jesus. That is where Paul has found himself as he wrote this letter. That's where we find ourselves. We are in this spot going to the nations to help every people, nation, tribe, and tongue to the fulfillment of Matthew 24, where Jesus said the gospel must be preached amongst all the nations. Matthew 28, it says, go and make disciples of all nations. And then it says, notice, there's a hardening in part. Or maybe other translations, you might read it to say a partial hardening. See, just like in wintertime when a lake freezes for a while, and you can go and walk on it and skate on it and snowmobile on it, but then when the summer sun and warmth comes, what happens to the ice? It's only hard for a while, a season, and then the sun melts it again and it becomes soft. Frozen for a period, but summer will come. Right now for a purpose, the Israelites' hearts have been hardened. But in some mysterious, unknown, don't totally wrap my mind around it and fully understand sort of way, but there is going to come a day when the, the ice is going to melt, when the hardness is going to be softened, when the veil is going to be lifted, and what's going to happen is there is going to be this most mind-blowing, majestic, and incredible revival where the ethnic people of Israel come in groves and droves to see that Jesus is, in fact, the Savior of the world, and they give their lives to him. This is not saying that the Israelites will somehow be saved in a different direction. Jesus is very clear in another way. It's not by the laws coming back on the table here. It's saying, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So there is going to come a day when the Israelites are going to see that Jesus is the Savior, and there's going to be this massive revival of running back to him, of giving their faith in him, and so, verse 26 says, All Israel will be saved, as it's written. The Deliverer will come from Zion, and he will turn goodness, uh, godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them, and I will take away their sins. That Deliverer is talking about Jesus. He's going to turn away the hardness of the hearts of those, the godlessness of Jacob, which is another name for Israel. And just as we saw in chapter 10, in, 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 in droves, these Israelites are going to believe in their hearts that Jesus is the Lord and be justified. They're going to confess with their mouths that Jesus is their Savior and he resurrected from the dead and they're going to be saved. 
Verse 30 says, just as you were at one time disobedient to God, you Gentiles, and you've now been received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So they too have now become disobedient in, in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Now, I don't profess to understand how all of this is going to work. Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour. I don't know the timing. I don't know how. I don't know when. I don't understand how all of this will play out. God's plans and ways are higher than our ways. That's why we worship and adore him. But what we see here is that from the very beginning of the story right to the end, as it gets wrapped up with this bow around the present, which is the totality of the good news of the gospel of Jesus, is that God is good and he is working a plan out to bring about salvation of all nations, people from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. He is lavishing his grace out in ways that frankly blow our minds. And what it does is it leads us to worship. It leads us to praise. It leads us to this glorious wrap up because it's all that you can do at the end of this. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, the grace of God is being poured out and is going to be poured out in ways that are beyond what you could ever imagine. That cool morning in Bristol, England, in 1737, when Whitfield stood up to preach. He stood up to preach to these coal miners on their way to work. The most vile, the most wicked, in a dangerous spot, in a place that you would never think you would ever go, to a people that seem too far gone and filthy to ever have hope. He stood there and preached to them. And the most incredible thing happened. See, both outwardly and physically, and inwardly and spiritually, this display of the grace of God being poured out came. As Whitfield stood up and said, no one is too far gone for Jesus who came to wash away your sins. No one is too far away for the love of God to forgive you and welcome you in. The grace of God is being offered to you and poured out right now. Outwardly, the most beautiful thing began to happen on the faces of all of these men who were so black from soot. The blackness literally started to fall off their faces as the tears streamed down their eyes. And the color of their skin began to seep through as their faces became clean, physically, outwardly showing what was going on inside as the Spirit of God came upon their lives and washed them clean from the inside out. And the revival that would mark history began as the good news of the gospel went to a people in a place that you would never think or expect. And what we need to hear today, friends, is there are some of you who are at home right now and you are hearing all of this and you think you are too far gone and you are not. 
You are not too far gone for the good news of the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ. God's grace is for anyone and everyone, and you are not too far gone. Run to the arms of Jesus. There are some of you right now at home who are sitting there thinking about some loved one who you feel like is too far away, too far gone, and you've given up praying for that person. But God can move in even the hardest of hearts, the farthest away of people, and he can do a marvelous work Call out to the Lord and do not lose heart because God's grace is being lavished in ways that you would never imagine. And then there are some of us today who need the conviction and reminder that those people we've written off, those boxes we've set out in our own heads, those lines we've drawn where we look at that person and say, God could never work in them, need to be blown up and torn down, and we need to fall on our faces in worship and repentance because God is pouring out His grace in our boxes and our lines and our ideas of where God can work because of our arrogance needs to be cast before the cross to receive mercy and forgiveness and to remember the depths of the wisdom and riches of God, how unsearchable are His ways from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen.